Welcome. Um, a couple weeks ago, when we were speaking about an earlier chapter, and we talked about sticks and rulers in the hands of a jealous God, and I started off saying, we serve, an, so we serve a jealous God, amen? You remember this? So what do you think now? Can you say amen to that? We serve a jealous God? Amen. Okay, so there's, there's something positive about that, and we should suspect that there's something positive about that because the scriptures themselves say that God is good, and then they also say that God is jealous, so it has to fit in somehow. And we talked a little bit about how that jealousy is intertwined with his graciousness and his comfort, and it leads him to protect and defend us. I'm trying to find the sweet spot where the mic sounds all right. Is it? Okay, because I'm hearing a little feedback. And then secondly, we talked a little bit about God's measuring line. And the idea was early on, sometimes you see that God's going to measure us, and we think, oh no, this is bad. This, anytime God gets his measuring stick out, it's not going to be good for us. But we found that sometimes he's measuring so he can bless us. And in the case of Israel, what we found was that Israel was not going to be big enough in their city of Jerusalem to contain all of the goodness that God wanted to have. And so he said, I'm going to expand you. You're going to be a city without borders. It's going to be so big that I'm actually going to have to protect it with my own wall of fire. And so we see that God's measuring line isn't always bad. And then we see this idea of burnt sticks. We talked a little bit about the stick that was snatched out of the fire, and it was talking about this priest. And God was saying to him that you were like the stick that was snatched out of the fires of judgment. And what God did then was he snatched him out of the fire. The accuser, Satan, was standing right there. He silences him. He changes his clothes. He forgives him in one day. And then he explains to all of Israel that you're going to have such prosperity, you're all going to be able to plant your own fig tree, grow your own wine, and then share it with each other. And that was our lesson just a few weeks ago, just in chapter 3. And now we're moving on, talking about the temple builders here in the following chapter of chapter 4. So here we are. Here's our chart of the Old Testament. We just went through the 70-year exile here. Daniel, Ezekiel, we're now in Ezra, Nehemiah. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, this post-exilic period, focusing on Zechariah. And the teaching team is focusing on Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, and Haggai at this point. So with this, we're right here in the middle of this very beginning eight visions of Zechariah. Here it is blown up slightly bigger. Here it is slightly bigger. Okay. And with this, we are now in the fourth vision, so we're right in the middle of all these visions. And anytime you're in the middle of a prophetic book and there are tons of visions lined up, uh, we get intimidated here on the teaching team because we're, Jim and I were talking back and forth, who is going to get the woman in the basket? That's next week. I get the woman in the basket because there's some bizarre stuff that's going on here. And the prophets and the angels that are speaking with each other, it's not always clear what the conversation is. It's sort of like the woman at the well with Jesus, where it keeps going back and forth, and you're trying to follow, what's the conversation? Are you answering her question, or are you trying to ask another question that makes it a little more confusing? And that's some of what we're going to see here when we talk about this vision of the candlestick. I think I've figured out some of the main things here, and if you guys have some other opinions and interpretations, I'd love to get with you and talk about some of those things. There's more to say, but we have to truncate it down for one lesson here. So let's jump into the passage. This is Zechariah 4. So the angel who was speaking to me returned and roused me as one awakened from sleep. And so I picture his answer, if we read it like this, the angel says, he asked me, what do you see? I picture him saying more like, uh, um, I, I see a, a golden lampstand and a bowl at the top. It has like seven lamps and seven channels for each of the lamps. And 
There's also two trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left. Of the, this is like a guy awoken from the sleep. Like, quick, what do, you, what do you see? Oh, um, I see these things. And he doesn't really know what they mean. Um, so this is a picture of it coming together. I think this is probably the best depiction of this because in the Hebrew, some of it gets a little bit muddy. It could actually be a lamp that has 49 heads or it could be two lamps. Or, but in the end, this makes sense because this looks a lot like the one that was in the temple. And what we see about this, if you're not familiar with the Jewish style oil lamp menorah, there's actually a bowl at the top and it feeds down into the back there. You see that one lamp leg goes back into the bottom. So the oil is being fed from these trees. There's these two branches. And then out of it, we see these tubes coming out into this bowl that goes down into the lamp and then the lamp is lit. It makes a lot more sense if you understand Jewish oil lamps. We tend to think about candle lamps but this one's oil-fed, and that's going to be significant as we look at the passage as we continue on here. So this is what he sees. And then he asks the angel, what are these, my Lord? And the angel says, don't you know what these are? And replied the angel, and he said, no, I, I don't know what those are. And so at this point, he says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, what are you, great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain, and he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. So I don't know. Is this the answer to that? I'm, okay, I see some trees. I see some lamps. What are these? Well, here's the word to Zerubbabel. Okay, uh, which tree is that, that you're talking about now? Is that the lamp? Is that the tree? What is this here? And so there's, it's a little bit confusing. And so what Zerubbabel says, then what we, we hear a couple things. First, it's not by power, not by might, but my spirit. This is something that will be accompanied um, by God's power, not by the power of man. So when we look at what, what's happening here, we, after a while in this narrative, we start to understand he's talking about the building of the temple. And Zerubbabel is the guy who builds the temple, and he has just laid the foundation. There's been kind of a lackluster review of this. We'll look at that in Haggai, where people weren't very impressed with this small, little foundation. Uh, they remembered the old foundation of Solomon, but here the foundation wasn't so great. Uh, but as he's looking forward to building this, what God's telling Zerubbabel, don't try to force this thing. This is going to be by my spirit. It's not going to be by your power. It's not going to be by your might. You might feel a little knocked over the fact that you had all the old men crying at the unveiling of the, the foundation, but don't try to force your way through this. This is something that's going to require the power of the spirit. Now, this, I think this actually could, after toying around with it for a while, I think this might actually be something that is answering that question, what are these things? I think the Holy Spirit is involved in some of this. I think the Holy Spirit might be the trees and with the, with the oil flowing out of the trees. And as we get into that a little bit more, that might make some sense. So I think maybe he is answering the question, but we'll get into that. The second thing he tells Zerubbabel is a great mountain is gonna become a plain. Now, there, there are two views on what this is, and I think both of them might actually be correct. The first one, this is the temple at the time of Zerubbabel, after Zerubbabel has built it. And so when he comes in, essentially what you have is a temple mount, and it probably had rubble from the temple on top of it. And so you have a mountain, which is kind of hard to build something on, and then also you have all the rubble. And what people are suggesting here is maybe what God is saying to Zerubbabel is that I'm going to make it so it's level for you to be able to build this temple out. And keep in mind, this temple mount here now, it doesn't look like a mountain anymore because now they've made these huge retaining walls and they're building the temple on top of it. So it could be talking about 
I'm going to make it flat for you. I'm going to make it plain for you so the mountain will be able to be like a plateau. So God's going to build up this Temple Mount. But if we look at the, older, um, the Old Testament context, what we're going to see is in Isaiah 41 through 5 and Isaiah 56, 50, or 5 through 8, that there is a lot of Old Testament context here that helps us understand what's going on. So the first one, Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for and that she has received from the Lord double for all of her sins. A voice of one calling the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight a highway for our God. That sounds a lot like John the Baptist, doesn't it? And then also every valley shall be raised up, every hill shall be made low, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the rough ground shall be made level, the rugged place is a plain, and the glory of our Lord will be revealed, and all of his people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So you see some language here. And by the way, that kind of ties in a little bit when Jesus talks about, you say to this mountain, um, I'll throw you into the sea, um, go into the sea, that it'll happen. I think some of that might actually be helping us to understand a little bit about what Jesus is talking about. I don't think he's actually talking about throwing mountains into the sea. That would actually be pretty inconvenient for the rest of the world, especially if you lived on that mountain, that you said it, you had faith, it happened, it would be inconvenient. But when you start to understand the picture here is that God is trying to draw all of his people back to his holy city. And mountains and valleys and all the rivers, everything that gets in the way of you getting back to the holy city is an obstacle. And so what God is talking about here is he is making a way for us to come back to him and he's going to make it so that the mountains are flat, make it so the hills are flat, make it so the valleys are flat so that you can be able to return to the Lord. And this is what we see here in Isaiah 56. To them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's the passage Jesus quotes at the temple cleansing. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will still, I'll gather still others to them besides those who have already gathered. And so I think that part of what Jesus is, or what God is telling um, Zerubbabel here through the prophet is that God is making a way, not just about clearing the temple mount. This isn't about building a building. This is about bringing God's people together to worship. And what God is saying is the kingdom is coming and I am preparing a way for you. And this is not about you just building a temple. This is about me bringing the people together that you can worship. And so this is why Zerubbabel's work is going to be greeted with shouts of grace, grace to it. This is not about building a building. This is about something bigger that God is doing. This is about Zerubbabel getting out of the way and God's spirit working through him to build the kingdom of God. So then the word of the Lord came to me. Now we're back to Zechariah again. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will complete it. Then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me, for who scorns the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord which scan the whole earth will rejoice when they see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. So the first thing here, don't scorn the day of small things. Again, talking about the foundation, don't be discouraged if you lay the foundation and people don't see it. And by the way, those of you who are more in the apostolic gifting, those kind of church planner folks, often you'll bring up something exciting and say, can't you see what this is? 
you have the foundation laid here already in the church and we can build this out of this church. And often people will say, I don't see it. I don't see it at all. And it gets discouraging because you want to push forward and you can see the, the building already built. You can see what God's getting ready to do. And it can be discouraging at the beginning if you get some shouts of joy and then tears of people longing for something that once was in your church. It can be really powerful time of um, both joy and of pain and that it's not often the best way to start building something so all the people gave a great shout of praise this is looking at Ezra here um, the passage I told you we'd look at all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house was laid but many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish between the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. So remember, King David wanted to build a temple. God said no. So King David spent all of his life gathering up everything that he could, the cedars of Lebanon, cutting them down, stacking them up, getting them ready, gathering the gold and the silver and the jewels. And then after that, his son Solomon, who's going to build the temple, this is the height of the Jewish empire. He is gathering the wealth from the world. People are coming to him for wisdom, bringing their treasures with him, and he's storing it, getting it ready for the temple. How could you compete with that? So if you're Zerubbabel coming out of your poverty, trying to build something out of poverty and slavery, and you're building this new temple, you don't have generations of things stored up in order to be able to put these things together. And so he, he is here doing the best he can with the materials that he has, and the younger folk, they don't know any better. They're, they're excited. They're glad to be back in the lab. They're glad to start a new thing. But the older folks who remember the way things used to be, they're disappointed because they saw how long it took to build into something great, and then it was leveled. It was flat. And so now they've made this great journey to come back to their land, and now it's disappointing for them. And it's also going to be disappointing for Zerubbabel as he sits down and tries to hear everybody and try to sort through. And that's a lot what it's like to be a pastor, by the way. During COVID, um, it was uh, really hard for pastors everywhere because every, every single thing that they did was criticized on both sides. And people didn't seem to understand um, that political parties and various things and various views um, need to be filtered through before you talk to their, your pastor rather than taking your party line and then dumping on him from both sides. Um, the good news about that is after a while you start just thinking, you know what, I'm just going to do what the Lord wants us to do. And then the people who aren't happy with it, that's okay because I did my best. And really that's what I guess we should be doing all the time. But when it's so polarized, it can become easier in the end. So a word for Zerubbabel, don't scorn the day of small things. The eyes of the Lord will scan the whole earth and they're going to rejoice when they see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. So when we talk about a plumb line, if you're not familiar with building, this is a plumb line. And so the plumb line is a very simple device. It's just a weight on a string and it pulls down to the earth. And this is perfectly level here because it's pulling down to the center. You put a level on this, it will be level. So a very simple device to be able to tell if something's level. And so if you hang this beside a wall that you're building, you'll be able to know if your wall is straight. Just if it's straight with this, then it's straight. And so God says that whenever he sees this in his hand, he rejoices. Let me go back to that again. So the eyes of the Lord are scanning the whole earth, and all he has is a foundation and rubbles there with a plumb line, and God is rejoicing. This is all it takes to make God rejoice. A plumb line in the hand. Um, for the other people, they don't see the temple yet, but God sees it. He knows it. And so I asked them, what are these olive trees? So he gets back to this. It doesn't seem like Zechariah is completely happy with the answer so far. So that makes me think like, well, maybe he didn't completely answer the question yet. 
it's sort of like, okay, thanks for the prophecy. That was good. But returning back to my original question, what are, what are the two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? What are, what are the two olive branches? What are the two conduits um, from which the golden oil pours out? So Jesus' disciples make similar mistakes. When you're talking to an angel or you're talking to Jesus, ask one question at a time. Because then they answer it and you're like, oh man, which one is that? Which? So contain your excitement, pick the most important one and ask that question because they might just answer and you'd be like, oh, okay, well, which one is that for? I'm not sure. So at this point he said, what are the two olive branches beside the two gold conduits from the golden oil? And he says, don't you know what these things are? Like, oh, come on. No, I don't. I don't know what these things are. Um, so these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So the term anointed ones here is interesting. It literally means sons of oil. Um, so we can take it to mean anointed as though someone was anointed in oil, um, but it might mean something a little bit different here. It might, just not, might not just be anointed ones, but there's something definitely to do with oil here. And in fact, there's two different Greek words for oil, and he uses the weird one, and so it becomes harder. So with this, um, so who could this be? So if the book helps us out, if we're looking at the context of the book, well, you remember we talked about that burnt stick in the last chapter. In the last chapter, there's a guy named Joshua, not the one with the conquest, but Joshua, the priest here now, after the exile. He's one of these, maybe. There's rubbles, the other one. So if the context of, of this book helps us, well, that's who they are. They're Zechariah and Zerubbabel. Um, but some of you, if you've read Revelation, you're like, wait a minute, this sounds a lot like Revelation. You know, you've got two witnesses, they're olive trees, they're lampstands, they're measuring out the temple. This almost sounds verbatim what Zechariah is. And it talks about how they were giving a reed, so a measuring rod, and was told, go measure the temple of God and the altar with his worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. In other words, the Jewish court, it's the whole world. I mean, the, the Gentile court, it's the whole world. Just measure the Jewish part. Um, but the Gentiles are actually going to be trampling the holy city, the entire holy city, for 42 months. And then I'll appoint my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees, the two lampstands, and they st stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, so we got olive trees, lampstands, standing before the Lord of the earth. Sounds like the same thing. Sounds like the same guys. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths, devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so they will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So um, is that who we're talking about here? Well, if it is, how does Zechariah have any hope of understanding who these people are? He doesn't have the book of Revelation yet to check this out. So I'm still trying to figure out whether or not the angel is trying to answer his question or give him just as much information as he needs to know in order to speak and live in that area during that time. And what, I, what we often see, if you remember we talked about prophesying, prophecies in the Old Testament, it's not just prediction and fulfillment. Often there is a prediction and that is fulfilled and that fulfillment then looks ahead towards something future. So that there's going to be a new king like David means that David in some way looks ahead toward Jesus. There's going to be a prophet like Moses, while Moses then somehow looks ahead to something else. The virgin's going to conceive and give a son. Well, we see in Isaiah, Isaiah's wife has a son, young woman has a son, in the very next chapter, seems like it's fulfilled, it looks ahead toward something else. So I think it's possible here 
that this is looking toward these future witnesses. And so Zerubbabel and Joshua in this context are the two witnesses, but they look ahead toward a future set of witnesses as well. But we don't have to solve that today. We don't have to get into Revelation today, but I think we have to mention it because the passages are so close. And one of the things too, if, if you feel like you have to figure some things out, what I would say is, as we get into depth with some of this, it's okay for us to say, you know, I don't understand this, but I think I get the main point of what he's saying. And that's the way sometimes we have to read prophecy or we just get too frustrated and we stop. But if you get the main point, well, you've gotten most out of it that you need to. And then later on, maybe you'll understand the other minor points here. So sometimes God is speaking to them in their time, but then also helping us in our time to understand things a little bit more. And so for us, we might see this as looking ahead toward these future witnesses. So the question that I have here then is what are you building in your own life? Um, what's the plumb line in your hand? And what is it that God sees you doing and rejoices? So remember when we talked about the small things, some of the things that you would think are special to you and you might like think like, I think this is kind of neat about the way that I'm made. And I think this is kind of neat about the thing I can do, um, but no one else would really care about it because it's like a small thing and they wouldn't see how that could lead to something even better. But the question that I have for you guys is if you picture yourself here, um, is this plumb line that you have accurate? One of the things that we're told in our society is follow your heart. And we're also told in Jeremiah that the heart's deceitfully wicked. So that's kind of a problem. But Jeremiah also tells us that if the Spirit of God lives inside of us, then we're given a new heart, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. And so then that heart does become reliable because it's a heart that's informed by the Holy Spirit. It's not by power, it's not by might, but it's by the Holy Spirit. And so the question then is, well, is this Spirit empowered? Is it kingdom-focused? Is it the kind of thing that tears down mountains so that people can come to Jesus? So if you're measuring um, your success based upon whatever it is, and then you find out that it's not tearing down mountains and making the valleys flush so that people can come to the Lord, well then, are you building something that's going to measure up to God's plumb line? So the question is, are we ready to build God's temple? One of the things that uh, he said, not by power, not by might, but by his spirit. Well, let's look at this. If we feel like we're not capable of building what God has to build, wonder, well, um, do we feel like a burnt stick? I've had some people after the last sermon come up to me and say, like, oh, I really can relate to that, feeling like a burnt stick. And it can mean different things. I'm sure there's many others like, yeah, burnt stick, I, I don't really relate to that at all. Um, but think about what this burnt stick represents. It represents this person who was under the judgment of God, their works are being burnt up, they are so close to being rejected, and yet God saves them. Um, and, but one of the things we might think about here is some people don't live in light of the judgment, because there's some passages that talk about those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And there's this viewpoint among Christians that we're not going to be judged. But yet Jesus says things like, we're going to have to give an account for each harsh word that we've spoken. Well, that sounds kind of like a, a judgment. It doesn't mean that we're going to, in the end, be judged and condemned. Just because you're condemned doesn't mean you're not going to be judged, and your work's not going to be judged. If you look at 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be building with care. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, 
their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Um, it doesn't even seem like silver and costly stones are very much like valued here. And uh, the more that I read about this, the more I'm starting to think that he might be thinking about Zerubbabel and his temple here, and you'll see why here in a minute. It will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. Doesn't it sound a bit like burnt sticks? You know, this idea here that your work is going to be tested. Everything you've built throughout this whole life is going to be thrown in the fire, and it's going to be tested. And when it comes out the other side, if it was good, it stays. If not, then it doesn't. And there's no reward for that which doesn't stay. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and the Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. So with this passage, there's debates. There's one sense in which we are the temple of the Holy Spirit by ourselves. Another one in which we are holy stones being built into God's temple, as though collectively, as people, we are God's temple here. But we have to not miss the point here that this is a temple that's being built, and we're building it together as a church. And the Holy Spirit dwells in our midst and also dwells inside of us. So you might think that this temple building thing from the Old Testament doesn't really make much sense or does, isn't really necessary because we have um, no temple any longer. The temple's not important to us anymore. But don't miss the point that you are that temple now. And so the question is, how much effort, how much attention are you giving to building your own temple? This isn't just talking about good nutrition and all that, your life and the quality of life. That's important. Um, it's not talking about whether or not you should be tattooed or not. And that, this, people will sometimes throw that out to say, well, you're God's temple, so you shouldn't tattoo yourself. That's another theological issue we can get into later. But this here, the, this, I'm really starting to think, well, wait a minute, this starts to sound a lot like Zerubbabel, where he's standing there, and they already have the foundation there, and they're getting ready to build it up. And the question is, how are we going to build this? And he can't build with precious stones and all these other things because he's not building out of that height of the empire. But instead, God's saying, well, don't worry about that. It's not by power. It's not by might. It's by my spirit. And the idea here is that God is building this temple, taking small things and making them into something significant. So if you're not building God's temple, why not? You feel like this burnt stick. Some of you need to feel more like a burnt stick. You might not relate to that, um, but if our work is going to be judged, your stick might already be burning. It might be one of these things where you're just living this great and happy life, and you just think, it's going to be so great when I get before the Lord and he just gives me my reward. There's a judgment before the reward. It's a judgment of rewards, but at the same time, there's going to be aspects of, well, let's look at this aspect of your life. And what if God actually takes our lives and has it moment by moment, and it's just like the, uh, you know, in a football game where you go in the halftime, like, all right, let's watch back this play. Um, you wonder how many plays of our lives will God put before us and say, well, this one has this judgment, this one has this reward, this one has this judgment, this one has this reward. And if you look at this life now, not as you trying to earn salvation, that's not a thing. Um, but at the same time, if you look at this as God is going to give rewards according to what we've done, it changes the way that you build especially if you know that many of the things you're striving for are going to be burned up in the judgment, it changes priorities quite a bit. And so looking back to Zerubbabel, looking back to all that's going on here, think of the two olive trees, think of the, the, uh, um, the way that everything was set up in that picture. I think that what's going on here is you have two people that God has chosen for a specific task, and they're the leaders of Israel here, and God has refined them. 
God has redeemed them. He's taken burnt sticks, made them into sons of oil. And what he's doing now is pouring out of this olive tree into this lamp. And the, the thing about this then is if you actually have this source of oil that continually flows into the lamp, in the Jewish mind, that's significant. Because when you think about the temple, they have this uh, menorah in the middle of the temple where the priests are offering sacrifice, where the priests are offering incense. And this is only a place that the priests can go, and that is the only light that lights. And it's so significant that when they try to rededicate the temple, like later on this temple is going to get desecrated again, but when they try to rededicate the temple, they were afraid to start because they needed at least eight days of lamp oil to start it. The lamp oil was the big thing that made it so they couldn't start the building later on. And here you have this constant flow. So if you're tapped into the Holy Spirit, the idea of the Holy Spirit is flowing through these two men. They're not perfect men. They are redeemed men. And it's flowing now into the lamp, and the lamp burns, and the lamp shines this light and makes everything possible. And so with this, God is looking down on this situation. And if you were there, you might think, oh, this is a big deal. The temple's being built. Yeah, but they're divided about it. There's a, they're, at a, they're at a point where the old men are getting ready to complain about this because they're crying like, this is horrible. This is, this is not like anything that we, we had before. And at the same time, God's saying, no, don't stop looking at the bricks. Stop looking at the mortar. Realize that these people are the people that I've chosen. Don't fire Zerubbabel because you don't like his foundation. I have approved his plumb line. I've approved what is going to happen here. In fact, the Holy Spirit's going to flow through these things. So remember, God takes burned sticks and turns them into sons of oil. So I don't want you to leave discouraged if you suddenly are starting to look at your works and thinking, oh my goodness, I've been a burnt stick and I didn't even know it. But realize that's not the end of the story. God takes those burnt sticks, makes them into sons of oil. So here's the call for this week. Don't despise small beginnings. This is the time of year where people will often do um, New Year's resolutions, and often they ask, they say, like, this is uh, Planet Fitness is a place where they, you know, workout place, and they say that this next two weeks is a really busy time for them because everyone's living out their New Year's resolutions for the next two weeks, and then it calms down quite a bit after that. Uh, but don't despise, don't despise the small beginnings. If you see something small that's growing in you and you're failing, remember the righteous can fall seven times and the Lord still helps them up and they still grow. So don't despise the small thing. Even if other people around you are criticizing, thinking you can't do that, or yeah, you're always this failure, you always fall into this sin, or you know, there's, there's this cycle of guilt and shame from others around you who are disappointed in your own life, and you're disappointed in it too sometimes, but you have to understand that God is taking burnt sticks and he's making them into sons of oil, and it starts with very small things. And sometimes you have to keep picking up that small thing in order for to, to actually build into something else. So I'm not talking about a resolution. I'm not talking about a vow. I'm talking about surrendering the Holy Spirit in this. So it's not by power, it's not by might, but it's by His Spirit. So I want to just take a, a bit of a prayer moment here. Let's pray together a bit, and let's see what God has to say about these things. So let's pray. Lord God, you say that your eyes searched the world and found the light in the plumb line of Zerubbabel's hands and that you would make a mountain into a plain for Zerubbabel. And you have told us that we are all temple builders and that we are that temple. We don't want to wait until judgment to have our work tested and found to be wanting. So we ask for each person here, would you test our work? Would you make mountains into plains as we do our part to build on this foundation that's been laid and usher in your kingdom. 
So Lord, now we ask, would you just bring our minds to rest, our heart to peace? Everyone here, Lord, would you bring us into a posture of listening? Lord, what's the plumb line in our hands? Would you show each one of us what have we been using to measure our success? Would you help us to see how much of this is based on your word and your will and how much is based on something else? Now, the Lord might bring something to you. It might be a word or phrase, a memory, an emotion. Some of you do better feeling through things. Some of you do better thinking through things. But mind at rest, heart at peace. Lord, would you test us and would you help us to see what is the thing that we measure our success by? Would you take us back to when we first established this measurement? Or would you protect us from it? For some of this, it might be something that someone said, the way that someone looked at you. It might be the way that someone made us feel. Lord, we, what did we feel and believe back then? What were the lies, what were the truth that came to us back then that we still hold on to? Would you show us, are you pleased with this measure, Lord? As we hold the plumb line that measures the stones that build our heart, our minds, our temple that you dwell in with us, are we using the right measure? Are you pleased with this measure when we hold it in our hands? If you get a sense that the Lord is pleased with it, just hold on to that. Focus on that. Measure your other works with it that don't quite measure up. If, Lord, this is not the case, would you show each one, what do you want us to measure by? Would you bring that verse to our mind, that understanding to our mind, that picture to our mind that helps us measure these things? And Lord, I ask, would you show each one of us what are the works that you're calling us to that will build our souls, that will build the kingdom? Would you bring that to our hearts and minds? And Lord, there are those here who have been discouraged by a day when their small things were not good enough. We allowed others to discourage us. Would you show us when that day was and what we believed? Protect us from it. Lord, what's the next small thing you're calling us to do to build on this foundation? Lord, we thank you for the examples of the anointed men like Joshua the priest, Zerubbabel, who you used to rebuild what was destroyed. We ask that you complete the good works that you've begun in us and through us as we take these plumb lines and build on this foundation already been laid. We pray that this week you would help each person here not to despise the small beginnings, but that you would purify them in this moment and empower them in your spirit to take up the next step to walk out this work that you've called them to do, taking their place in the congregation like never before. Amen. Now, one last thing, an assignment before you go. So this is this week. 
The neat thing, some of you are going to say, oh, that was way too fast. That was way too fast. The good news is we have this online after we record it, and you can go just to the prayer portion, and you can pause it. If it's helpful to have someone guide you through it, you can pause the prayer. Another thing is check your plumb line throughout the week. That's one of the things here. If you're building and you don't go back and see if your plumb line's hooked on something else, that's one of the mistakes that people often use with a plumb line or a string is it's touching something else. There's a brick that's sticking out and now suddenly you have this brick that's out of place and everything is off because of that one brick. You might have to deal with the brick. You might have to check the plumb line. Um, and celebrate small beginnings. If there's something small that everyone else doesn't see that's a big deal, but you know that's the center of the Lord's calling for you, celebrate that small beginning with those who will celebrate it. And it might just be you and the Holy Spirit celebrating this small little thing because no one else can see it yet. And prepare yourself for next week uh, because the next week is the dreaded woman in the basket passage um, that Jim was hoping I would get and I did get. And so the, there's a woman in the basket, and they say, this is wickedness, and they push the woman in the basket. If you're curious who this woman in the basket is and why this is the only time in Scripture that there are women angels, um, come back and we'll talk about that. Um, but part of it is going to be, as we hit that passage, there's a purification that needs to happen as God brings his holiness into the temple. And so next week is going to be a time where we're laying some things aside. But don't be afraid about this. This is a gentle thing. No one's going to have to, to publicly repent or say anything shameful um, in any way. We aren't going to have you have to share anything like that. But do prepare yourself for next week. This is a good time for prayer, for fasting, especially if that day of little things keeps coming and you keep trying to put the first stone down and it keeps getting pulled away. We want to help you get that first stone, that second stone against that plumb line. And eventually here, just email me. I want to hear your stories. As if, if there's no one else that you can share these small things with, share them with me. I'll rejoice with you. As you share the small things, I'll rejoice with you if you have no one else to share them with.